0: Good evening, ladies and gentlemen of the listening audience. My name is Maurice Selby. I'm Anastasia. And you're listening to the one and only Health in Harlem on WHCR 90.3 FM New York, the voice of Harlem and the Health in Harlem podcast. And ladies and gentlemen, it is National Prostate Health Month, aka National Prostate Cancer Awareness Month. And we have an expert in the house, Dr. Frank Myers. He is a specialist in urologic oncology, oncology and robotic surgery. And he is joining us to bring us some really important, much needed. All right, put it this way. Um, all the men out there, right? Men's health, a big deal. Um, but also the women out there, because I know women are like, okay, wait, prostate. <laughs> prostate kids, I'm going to tune in. No, don't tune out. You have a brother, you have a father, you have a son for older women out there, somebody, a male in your life that could use this information. So don't tune out, right? And especially um, to the ladies out there because the fellas and including myself, we're hard-headed, And so it's gonna take you, right? Some of you women out there to bring your loved one in to make sure that they get screened um, or really just that they take care of themselves, right? And one thing that we need to talk about Um, In that regard, especially affecting men in this country and around the world is prostate health and prostate cancer. And so I've made my case. No woman will tune out from this point on. (laughs) Uh, But we're going to talk about this really important topic, Um, just very important topic as we go forward. So welcome to the program, Dr. Myers.
1: Thank you. Thank you for having me. It's an honor and a privilege um my fellow uh downstate family word <laughs> downstate strong, as we say yeah <laughs> i also want to thank uh anastasia and also um reed um for being able to allow me to to uh share with you guys tonight um and i i agree with dr selby i think it's um it's an important topic um it's uh it's something that that really shouldn't be ignored is is what i would say And and, and i'm probably a little partial to that just by virtue of what i do Um, But I do think that uh, prostate cancer and prostate health is an important, is an important part of men's health. And Mm. so I'm looking forward to the discussion with you all.
0: That's what's up. And just to break it down for ladies and gentlemen out there, for everybody out there, we are talking about over 170,000 men that will be diagnosed with prostate cancer this year, over 30,000 that will succumb to this illness. And this is basically the most commonly uh, diagnosed cancer, um, non-cutaneous cancer, so meaning non-skin cancer um, in men. So we just really, right, you're talking about something that um, significantly affects our health as men. And unfortunately, you know, aside from the occasional celebrity that might come down with a diagnosis or that is being treated or seriously considered as having this, I don't think we really talk about it that much. Um, I don't know how you feel about that, Dr. Myers, in your opinion.
1: No, I agree. I mean, I think that just, I mean, you kind of, you kind of gave uh, gave one of the most important statistics. You know, it's a very common cancer in men. It's it's one of the more common cancers that we diagnose. And it's also a, a killer of men. It's one of the most common uh, cancers uh, that men are diagnosed with that, that, you know, kills us. And so I think for that reason alone, it's important to have a discussion with it. Um, and you're right. I mean, I think it's important to have celebrities you know, who come, you know, who unfortunately have the diagnosis to mm-hmm. know, help bring awareness. But I think it's something that we really shouldn't be waiting for celebrities to come out and talk about. It's something that we should be comfortable talking about at all times. And so, um, you know, I think it's definitely a conversation, um, a conversation that we need to have. Now, I, I will say this, um, prostate cancer, like any other condition is a spectrum. Um, and we can talk a little bit about how we think about it a phrase that you'll hear a lot is something called risk stratification Mm -hmm. Um, and people who are diagnosed with prostate cancer basically we're trying to determine how bad do we really think this prostate cancer is going to behave and the majority of of cancers that that are diagnosed i mean i'll just speak from personal experience the majority of cancers that are diagnosed um that i diagnose men with prostate cancers they don't die from Right. But it's still that still doesn't mean that it's not something that's worth talking about. And, and it should be something that's talked about more commonly, in my opinion.
0: Got it. No, I feel you definitely on that. Um, and so let's let's get into the I guess the very, very basics. If we were just to talk about the prostate itself, because I think we all know it's there. Right. Um, but having an, an idea, concrete ideas to um, where it is, what it does, um, I think that is a good place to start in just opening up this topic and so ladies and gentlemen just before we get into it we're going to go there right we're talking about the prostate so we are going into i mean no further into i mean you can't get much further into men's health um but we are going to talk about that so yeah yeah, what is this organ
1: i think it's a great place to start because you know i'll be honest with you we hear it a lot prostate prostate cancer but you know the question is what is the prostate prostate prostrate you know i mean (laughs) There's just I think that it's important to kind of know exactly what it is. And the best way that I can describe it is think about a lollipop, you know, one of those uh, lollipops. When you were a kid, you have the circle part, which is the candy, and then you have the stick, which is the can- the candy is attached to. Right. So if you think about the circle part, as the bladder, which is basically an organ where you store your urine and you think about that stick as what's called a urethra or a tube that you that you pass your urine through. The prostate is wrapped around that urethra is wrapped around that stick like a donut and it sits right under the circle of the lollipop. Now, it's important because every male has this. Um, That's just, you know, it's just an organ that we're that we're born with. And when you're young, the prostate is is of a size where it's not going to cause you any issues, mm-hmm. you know, but you can imagine as you get older that prostate grows and if it's wrapped around that stick it's going to basically squeeze on that stick so it's going to make make it difficult for people to pass urine you're going to have those kind of symptoms so that's when, when you hear older men talking about difficulty passing urine it's the prostate that's giving them an issue the question is is that prostate giving them an issue because it's just naturally growing larger or is it because it's growing larger because of a cancer and, and more importantly is it a cancer that that what we call clinically significant or cancer that needs to be addressed and so, you know, that's kind of how we think about it. But to go back to the, the basic concept that Dr. Sebi was talking about, which I think was good just to kind of make sure we're all on the same page with that. The prostate is an organ, it sits right under the bladder. And again, just think about that, that, that lollipop kind of analogy. Um, and um, the only real reason, I mean, there's not many functions that the prostate has on, other than providing fluid, um, contributed to ejaculatory fluid from men, So, I mean, it's not a real important organ to be honest with you, but unfortunately you can get some bad cancers in it.
0: Got it. And I I guess since we're along that topic of just prostate health um, and being that it is prostate health awareness month as well. um, Can you just briefly talk about that enlargement? Is there anything that we know of that causes that or um, any way that we can prevent it? And maybe a little bit more as far as the uh, symptoms of that, or when we know that that might be going on?
1: Yeah. So a, a long story is we don't exactly know. Um there's some thoughts as to what causes the enlargement. Um, kind of the most basic uh, and the easiest explanation that we tend to give people is age. Um, but really what, happened is, what happens is the, the prostate responds to different hormones in your body. And as you get older, the prostate has more, more time to respond to these hormones. And as a result, they basically stimulate the prostate to grow and grow and grow. Now, it gets a little tricky because you would think that, well, we're all men, we all produce these hormones, so shouldn't shouldn't we pretty much have the same size enlargement everybody have the same enlargement uh, you know as they age and it, 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 it's a little complicated in that some men they, they just for whatever reason they, they grow larger prostates now I'm speaking specifically about in a setting of, of not having prostate cancer just mm-hmm. just the, the prostate growing um, some men some men tend to grow larger prostates some men don't um, even some men with huge prostates, they they may not have the classic symptoms that you might hear your uncle your dad or your grandfather complaining about getting up at night to pass urine 3 4 or 5 times you know the stream being weak uh, dribbling you know having to use the restroom right after you just passed urine um, some people never have those symptoms even with a huge prostate and some people have very tiny prostates that are actually normal size and they have really bad symptoms so it kind of just contributes to the to the um, just the fact that we really don't know the true cause um, of of why people have these symptoms and why the prostate grows um, the way it does and why it grows differentially in some Mm -hmm. men versus others.
0: Got it. And so if we we jump over to actually talking about prostatic cancer, um, Mm -hmm. what are the epidemiological trends right now when we talk about this illness? And I know we, we briefly mentioned some of them. Is it Um, as it being one of the the more commonly diagnosed cancers um, in men. But even if we go a little bit more detailed, are there specific populations that are affected more by this illness that are or that are having worse outcomes when we talk about prostate cancer?
1: Yeah, I mean, I I think that's a very important discussion to have because that that also ties into screening and it it gives the question, well, are there certain populations that we need to target Um, and and make sure I mean, honestly, you want to target everybody but are there certain populations that we need to, do we need to maybe target them earlier? Mm. You know. So basically um, when you look at prostate cancer diagnoses, um, it tends to be more commonly diagnosed in places like the United States, um, in certain parts of Europe, Australia, um, less common in uh, places like Asia. And a lot of this, um, we think it might be genetics, um, all, but also screening. So in some places where you have more robust and and you have, you know, just more intense screening programs, obviously you're going to find things more often. Now, that kind of goes back, though, to what we talked about earlier. Um, Just because you find more prostate cancer doesn't necessarily mean that they're bad prostate cancers. You know, if you're screening more, you're undoubtedly going to uncover prostate cancers that are lower risk. Um, Some prostate cancers we don't even treat. Mm -hmm. um, uh, We don't treat up front, I should say. Um, so are you uncovering those prostate cancers versus the more aggressive ones? So that even that discussion is complicated, but but there, to answer your question, there are areas of the, of the world where prostate cancer is more common. Now I think the more important question is, uh, you know, when you asked about certain populations being impacted more, and I mean, there's no question uh, that men of African descent, um, uh, not only do we tend to be diagnosed earlier. Um, uh, There's other things like in terms of uh, how often we die from prostate cancer, uh, Mm -hmm. how aggressive it is. And so there are undoubtedly uh, populations who who bear a significant burden with prostate cancer. And it appears to be more than others based on the data that we have.
0: Got it. And um, just to add to that, ladies and gentlemen, just be mindful, too, that um, when we look at even socioeconomic status, you know, we see some impacts there. Because then we get into the availability of healthcare, right? Quality healthcare, being able to have regular checkups. You're going to hear that as a theme. Just get ready for it, get used to it. And we actually say that each and every week on this program, right? So if there's anything you're going to take away from everything that we're going to get into, um, you need to see a doctor or a healthcare practitioner, a nurse practitioner, PA, somebody that's going to look after your health over the long term um, to make sure that you are safe and as healthy as possible. Yeah. So we, we'll move on uh, with that said. So when we talk about the risk factors, and I guess mainly getting into sort of those more worrisome cancers, and as you said, a lot of people, um, there are a lot of men, right? Pretty clinically, or you would say clinically insignificant prostate cancers, meaning a prostate cancer that's not causing them probably very many problems or not leading to um, poor outcomes as far as disability death. Um, but when we talk about those ones that are potentially risky, right? Or that could lead to mortality or death, what are the risk factors associated with that?
1: So that's a very good question. Um, so there are a lot of potential risk factors. Um, I think some of the more common ones that we like to talk about. Um, so. I think genetics plays a a huge role. Um, And when I say genetics, I'm talking about genetics at the molecular level um, and also uh, uh, just genetics uh, from the standpoint of of what's happened in your family. So for example, there has been association of uh, of prostate cancer in families where there's a high incidence of breast cancer. Um, So you guys may have heard a lot about the BRCA BRCA mutations in breast cancer. Um, it's a it's a gene that that tends to be mutated and tends to lead toward and tends to lead to breast cancers. But there's also some association with BRCA mutation and prostate cancer, right? So that's that's it at a molecular level. But another thing too is, and this might this is not necessarily at a molecular level. It's it's more so just kind of for any anybody in, in clinical practice, you can kind of obtain this from the history. Um, but the first thing that I, that well, one of the first things that I ask people is. Do you have a family history of prostate cancer? If the answer is yes, my next question is, what is the generation? So what we find is that people who have, so people who have a family history of prostate cancer in itself doesn't necessarily mean that that your your risk is 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 is, is, is much different from you know the next person. Um, but things like whether or not you had somebody in the same generation. So like if you had a brother mm-hmm. with prostate cancer, right? Um, that's very different than if you had a, if your dad or if you, even if even if your you know uncle or somebody had prostate cancer, um, your risk is much higher because it's in the same generation. The other question is 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 what's the age? So we tend to see that people who are diagnosed earlier, family history of uh, people diagnosed earlier, and also people diagnosed with lethal prostate cancer that they eventually succumb to, these are all risk factors. Now again, I can't just look at somebody and say, well, you have this gene mutation. But that's there to me. That is pretty clear cut that there's a genetic component to that. Um, so I think that that's one of the biggest um, risk factors. Now, environmental. Uh, there are definitely environmental factors. Um, so if you if you look at men from from Japan, for example, or certain parts of Asia, if you look at their risk overall, it doesn't seem to be as high as as men in this country, North America. But there's been some interesting studies done. Um, for example, if you look at men who uh, basically, uh, came to the United States. For example, Cal- men from Japan to California, mm-hmm. their risk over time tends to tends to start to become equal to that of men who are already here. So that suggests that there is a, a an environmental component that that is contributing to this as well. So it's a multifactorial. Um, but I, I think just to kind of circle back, I think that there's definitely some genetics involved. Um, and there's definitely different environmental um, aspects too that are that potentially are contributing.
0: Got it. One thing that uh, typically comes up is the amount of control we have over some of these risk factors. So I know you mentioned some environmental, potential mm-hmm. environmental factors, um, but if we were to go to a little bit um, more nuanced as far as modifiable risk factors. Um, or lifestyle things are there any risk factors that are modifiable so whether it is um, things like smoking or alcohol use or even just getting more exercise and, and you knew that ladies and gentlemen, you knew I was going to throw that in there at some point on health in Harlem. We talk about it every week. you got to get out and be active and get it in. Mm-hmm. But anyway, I just want to see if if Dr. Myers had um, anything to add in that respect as far as things that we can do in our day-to-day lives, dietary, um, physical activity, habits, things like that, that can sort of help us uh, maybe lower that risk of developing prostate cancer? Or if we're doing the wrong thing, obviously increase that risk.
1: Yeah, no, I think that's a great question. And it's actually a question I get asked a lot. Because I know really you do. They're asking you. me one of two things. They're saying, um, is there something that I can do that potentially will avoid inactive treatment because they don't, you know, they're afraid of being treated Hmm. or they're asking, you know, do I need to change my diet or do I need to change my lifestyle? And I'll tell you, there are some suggestions um, that certain aspects of the diet can be uh, either beneficial or not beneficial with respect to the development of prostate cancer and aggressive prostate cancer. There are some, I think more importantly though, and this is kind of what I hear from home patients. I think what I usually tell patients is, no matter what, whether or not this affects prostate cancer or not, I think maintaining a healthy diet, I think um, exercise, it's imp- definitely uh, no smoking and and you know minimal to no alcohol, you know whatever you whatever whatever, just not a lot. I, I definitely think that those things are good for your overall health. And the other thing I tell people is this: regardless of if this helps prostate cancer or not if you're treated for prostate cancer with a surgery so any any surgery you do we don't just look at what we're treating we look at the other aspects of your medical care so for example if you have poorly controlled diabetes if you have really bad heart disease right if you have you know if you're you know if you have a high bmi meaning that you're overweight for for whatever reason right these are all things that actually can contribute to to poor outcomes around the time of the surgery. So infections, uh, hospital readmissions, things like that. And so at the very least, I think that doing the things in terms of a good healthy diet, exercise, is important for a number of other reasons other than just you know trying to prevent the development of prostate cancer. Because the reality is, is that I don't think that we can definitively say, well, if you eat this, then you'll be fine. Because I think that it's so multifactorial that that you might be, ha, you might have a diet that we find is this is beneficial for prostate cancer, but you might have other of your of yourself that that basically kind of negate that, right? Mm. And and I and I always tell people one of the worst prostate cancers that I ever witnessed and ever diagnosed was in Brooklyn, New York, at Kings County Hospital, and somebody who was a they exercised religiously and they were a vegan, and it was one of the worst prostate cancers that I've ever diagnosed. So. I mean, I would never tell people that, you know, diet and things like that don't matter. Um, Mm -hmm. But I think that there's more to the story. Um, And I do think that diet and exercise is important for the overall person in general. Does that answer your question?
0: Yes. Yes, it does. And I I think um, when we talk about, you know, we've had a program talking about building resilience. Right. And this was obviously talking more so um, in, in the vein of mental health. And dealing with the stress and anxiety, especially the fear and uncertainty that we've seen, um, especially in the last 18 months with the pandemic. But when we talk about physical resilience, um, that is one thing that I think Dr. Myers was alluding to in that the healthier you are, regardless of um, a diagnosis like prostate cancer or something else, right, something else happens, you have a, a more likely chance of surviving that. Um, or having a good outcome, right? A good outcome as in we are able to treat that. Um, and despite the sort of adverse effects that come with any medical therapy, you would be more likely to withstand that and then be able to recover um, exactly. to a degree. So I, I definitely thank you for, for um, answering that question for us because that is one thing that, I mean, even in the emergency department, and usually the thing that sort of we're dealing with um, is, are things like enlarged prostate, um, you know, individuals having some urinary difficulty, um, maybe even a new diagnosis of prostate cancer. But that's one of the first things that comes up even with the diagnosis, um, is what can I do right from a lifestyle standpoint to help negate, um, or, or deal with that diagnosis or prevent these things entirely. So thank you for that.
1: And the reality too, is that prostate cancer, it's, it's one of these cancers where I'll I'll be honest with you, man. There's some people in their forties walking around with prostate cancer and don't even know it. Mm. Seriously, like they've done autopsy studies and very young men, you know, they've had prostate cancer. Now you have to be very, and I I know you know this, but to the audience, you have to be very careful when you kind of hear things like that, because, you know, you might say, oh man, that means I need to get checked right now. And it doesn't necessarily mean that like if you're 30 years old i don't think you should i don't think you necessarily need to go and have a psa or which we can talk about or anything like that but 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 the point is is that it's one of these things where like sometimes you just don't know and and i don't know if there's truly one particular diet that's going to prevent you from developing prostate cancer and that's the only reason it's the diet i think that i think that there's a lot of things that, are, that need to be kind of taken into consideration. And I think there's a lot of things that, that, that are factored in when it comes to developing prostate cancer in general.
0: You had a, a question, Anastasia? Well, I think he um, I was mentioned, I was gonna ask about PSA um, and how do you go about screening for prostate cancer? Because my dad's hitting that age. <laughs> He's hitting that age that we have to actually worry about this. So it's good information yeah. for us to know as well as daughters. I felt like we segue perfectly into screening all of that. That was
1: like, yeah. So I think that that's a wonderful question, and I think it's a very important question. So the first question is, what is PSA? So PSA is essentially a protein or a molecule that the prostate leaks out, right? And normal prostate tissue leaks PSA, prostate cancer leaks PSA. Um, if you have inflammation in a prostate that can leak a lot of PSA out. If you recently had sexual intercourse, if you recently, you know, took a long bike ride, right? Any, any kind of anything that affects the prostate can cause the, the, the prostate to leak the substance. Now, typically the PSA that leaks out, it tends to be below a certain level. And, you know, I, I don't necessarily think we, we need to go into too much depth about how we chose the level that we choose, but... Traditionally, we've chosen a level of four, right? Um, now you can make the argument of three to four, um, and if you look at some of our guidelines, I mean that's pretty much the the level where we get concerned. So PSA is only a blood test. So what happens is you go to the you go to your primary doctor. Typically, is how it starts. They they run a panel of tests, and PSA is usually one of them. And so it's a simple blood test. And then the question is, is well when is it done? Well, according to our, our guidelines. Um, we usually, the, the, the recommendation is that you consider it in men of average risk who are who are 55 to 69, okay? Um, and, and the reason, the, the, the main reason why is because there's been a bunch of studies done and, and those were the age ranges where we, where we found that there was there was a lot of benefit in terms of screening. Um, but even, there's even some literature to suggest that we should screen even earlier and in, 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 starting at age 50. Okay, but, but typically average man, average risk man, I usually tell people 55 to 69, 55 is the start. Now, that's average risk. Um, if a person has higher risk, um, it's a little bit different. I actually recommend, and, and if you look at the guidelines, it's kind of, it's in line with this too, but I actually re- recommend at least one PSA at some point in the 40s. And, and the reason why that's important is because there's some pretty good scientific evidence that you can look at the PSA level, the blood test that early and depending on what the level is, you can kind of get a sense as to whether or not somebody has a high chance of developing a clinically significant prostate cancer in the future. So to summarize PSA, is just a blood test. The prostate leaks this molecule. Um, we typically will recommend 55 to 69, uh sometimes as early as 50 in average risk men but usually 55 to 69 and then in men who are of higher risk you know we we de- we definitely recommend considering to start earlier as in the 40s um and uh usually people will get just a blood test and i think you can make the argument that that is probably okay i actually recommend that people do a blood test and a rectal exam at least once at least on the first one. And the reason why is because, so a rectal exam, you might, you know, if you've seen Family Guy and some of his other shows, you see people joking about giving people prostate exams and it's, it's supposed to be, you know, a very bad experience for people. But the prostate exam is important because when you feel the prostate, if there is any lump or if there's anything firm or anything unusual, that could be, the, that could be a, a warning sign of cancer. Now, I don't think that should be the only thing that's done. I think if you're going to do anything, if you, some people, they sit in the office and they say, I do not want to, I don't want a rectal exam. I just, I don't like that. I don't want it. And that's fine. But I think if you're not going to do anything, I think you should at least do a PSA. Um, But if you're okay, I think you should do it with it. I think you should do both of it. I think you should do the PSA and I think you should do the rectal exam at least once. so that, that's typically how I counsel people. And again, if it's somebody who has a family history, mm-hmm. somebody of African descent, I usually will say, "Let's do one, let's do one screening assessment in your 40s, and see where you're at, and then kind of make the determination based on that." Does that answer your question, Anastasia?
0: Yeah, um, and I actually have a follow-up question. So you mentioned um, for people for men that would be average, it would be 55 to 69. What would just someone that's not high risk be
1: considered average? Or is there yeah. some sort of guideline for that? No, that's a good question. So somebody who doesn't have a family history of prostate cancer, um, like, for example, in a, in a first cousin or, or a brother, somebody who is not of African descent, I would say um, somebody who doesn't have a history of breast cancer, you know, things like that is, is what, I would say, what I would consider to be of average risk. Now, the flip side of that is when do you stop? Because again, there's a fine balance when screening too much because the the purpose of screening programs is to identify things early and address things that need to be addressed early. That's colon cancer, breast cancer. Um, But there's undoubtedly going to be times where you overdiagnose, right? There's going to be false positives. There's going to be people who you diagnose these cancers in, and you you probably, they probably would have never done anything to affect their life. And so Once, typically what we tell people is above the age of 70, if your PSA, I mean, some people just say stop altogether, but if your PSA is below a certain point, I usually say four to six, there's a very low likelihood that you'll ever develop a clinically significant prostate cancer that will impact your life. So you can have a discussion with the patient to say, hey, I think that it's probably reasonable to to not screen anymore after the age of 70 based on those parameters. But this is all a discussion with the patient. I mean, honestly, even the, even the the discussion about at the age of 55 is really shared what we call shared decision-making everything with prostate cancer is shared decision-making. That means that you talk to the patient, you give them, you you explain to them, you know, why screening is important and what we could uncover, but ultimately, you know, it's, it's a decision that you have to be, that you have to make between the patient and yourself. Um, and so, you know that's that's typically how i how i kind of counsel people and, and usually most people they're they're fine and they say hey let's do it and let's let's just be sure
0: and you know i think that's so important it goes back to what we said at the outset of the show right um and i said that we would be talking about this again ladies and gentlemen it's gonna come up um again in that we strongly advocate for you to have a provider that you see on a regular basis that can help you make this decision, right? These are not easy decisions, right? To do the PSA or to not to, or to, um, to do the digital rectal exam, um, which I advocate, right? Because that can help us find something like a a prostate cancer early, and therefore we can deal with it and give you options to treat it better. Um, but you know, it's not easy to make these decisions. You want to do that with a professional that you trust, that knows you, and by knowing you, they would be able to advise you, right, on the best way. Forward, um, and that's that's exactly what the United States Preventive Services Task Force says. This is an, a body an agency responsible for helping us developing these screening guidelines, and that's what they say is to have this shared decision making conversation, especially at that age 55. Um, and if you have other very concerning risk factors such as that family history, I think if we use my example, and I know I've brought this up before about colon cancer in my family, right? We know that. Um, at 50 years of age, it's recommended you go for a colonoscopy, but the situation can be different based on family history. In my case, right, my father died of colon cancer, so I had to get screened early. Thank you. Thanks, Dr. Myers. Um, But but that's the same case that we're making, right? And a person that you see on a regular basis, whether it's a primary care physician um, or another healthcare practitioner that you see on a regular basis, knowing that history would be able to advise you right going forward, um, yeah. based on your risk. So that's why, you know, again, we cannot stress that enough. And just making sure that you have um, someone to look after you on a regular basis and help you in making these decisions.
1: Yeah, and 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 I agree with you 100%. And, and then the other thing I'll tell you just to kind of circle back with the rectal exam. Um, you know, I always advocate, I, I mean, I strongly advocate that plus the PSA, I, I you know, The reason why is because it goes back to county, right? I I remember I was sitting right in E9 clinic in county as a resident, and we had a gentleman, and he had a family history. His PSA was normal. His PSA was less than, basically, it was like two point something. So the threshold, again, at that time, we were saying four. So we were like, no, this is fine, blah, 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 blah. But he, he had an exam, and it was a little questionable, so we biopsied him very bad prostate cancer. This was a PSA that wasn't concerned in a PSA level. Mm-hmm. Now, that's why I strongly advocate both of those things. Now, the reason why I would not say the rectal exam alone is because sometimes you get tricked. Now, I think anytime you do a rectal exam, if there is any, 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 any question, you probably should have a biopsy to diagnose that mean to basically see if it's actually prostate cancer. Mm-hmm. But sometimes you get tricked. There's a lot of things that you know, it could be a piece of stool. It could be a lot of things that, you know, feel abnormal and it's not. Um, and and, the, and the, the, the data that we have, it, it really supports PSA plus or minus um, the exam. So that's why I typically do it. And it's also a good opportunity. I think, um, you know, you talk about somebody being able to look after your health. So whenever you do a rectal exam, that's always an opportunity for you to screen for colon cancer, essentially. Now you're not doing a, a, a FECO a fit test or, you know, colonoscopy. But sometimes you can see a tumor and I've actually had that happen where I, you know, I was doing a rectal exam, you examine the area. Hey, this doesn't look like a hemorrhoid. This looks a little more concerning. Guess what? It was a rectal cancer. So, you know, that was a perfect situation. Looking
0: for one thing, you might find something else.
1: Exactly. Something that that was very serious. So, you know, it's it's very important. and, And that's why I advocate, you know, like Dr. Selby. Just having somebody, you know, that you can kind of help you navigate, you know, some of these screening uh, dilemmas, if you will, and just making sure your overall health is in is intact. Yes,
0: I want to um, quickly tell the story. This is the story of actually Nicole Hannah Jones, uh, a family member of hers, her uncle, who she was very close to. For everybody out there, Nicole Hannah Jones, the. Um, Brain Behind the 1619 Project, uh, featured in the New York Times. And actually, this was in episode four of the 1619, the podcast that accompanied that series. And the title of the podcast was How the Bad Blood Started. And at the beginning of that episode, uh, Nicole Hannah-Jones lays out the story of her uncle, Eddie, very hardworking man, um, very vibrant and colorful, um, animated, sort of the life of the party and very dear to her heart. And at one point he began to just feel very, very tired and and weak, um, began to have a lot of back pain and actually had a lot of trouble, right? Accessing care when it came to uh, this back discomfort. And at one point actually lost his employment with that, lost his health insurance. And actually that prolonged him ultimately being diagnosed with a pretty advanced case of prostate cancer. Uh, And one of the things that really came out of that was just these sort of symptoms that he had, this fatigue, this really intense back pain, and unfortunately, uh, the delayed diagnosis. Um, And so with that said, are there any symptoms that we can reliably sort of look for that would hint at an individual potentially having prostate cancer um, and therefore, right. Requiring some urgent follow-up.
1: Yeah. I mean, you know, that's unfortunate. And, you know, my condolences to the and her family and, you know, I had an uncle who had a very similar, mm.
0: si- similar
1: situation in terms of, um, you know, just being the life of the party and, you know, loved him. And then, you know, found out that he had a uh, metastatic prostate cancer.
0: Wow, and he man, was in sorry.
1: pain. Um, so uh, you know, this is a this is unfortunately this is this is, this can happen. Um, but what I'll say in terms of symptoms is that I think the most important thing is to not get to the point where you have symptoms. Now, those kind of symptoms are definitely the symptoms that we see in people who have advanced, incurable prostate cancer, and and that's exactly what we don't want. We don't want it to get to that point. We don't want you know. There's a number of reasons why this happens, you know, as outlined, um, but we don't want it to get to that point. Um, So usually, to be honest with you, prostate cancer has no symptoms, all right? You usually get symptoms if it's it's what we call locally advanced, potentially, or if it's it's metastatic. So what does locally advanced look like? Well, locally advanced could look like blood in the urine. You know, you you keep getting these urine studies and you keep seeing blood in the urine, or you actually seeing it, grossly seeing it. Um, that could be something else going on in the urinary tract, but if it's prostate cancer, that's usually a sign of what we call a locally advanced prostate cancer, or sometimes you get the same symptoms that you get as if you were just having normal enlarged prostate, getting up at night to pee, you know, um, feeling like you got to go all the time because the cancer is growing. If you can imagine the cancer is growing and it's causing a blockage or the cancer is growing and it's bleeding into your urinary tract, right? Those are locally advanced symptoms. Again, we, we, we typically don't want it to get to that point. Um, when you start having back pain, when you start having weakness, cause prostate cancer typically goes to the bones and it, it, typically the spine is, is, is a very common site. And so that bone pain is, is, it's, it's very severe. I mean, we've seen it enough, um, that, I mean, it's, it's, it's just, it's devastating. Um, and you, there's there's well-known uh, syndrome spinal cord compression that you can mm-hmm. get. Um, people tend to present with weakness in the lower extremities, paresthesias in the lower extremities, you know, things like that. And But again, these are all points where we don't want it to get to that point, and that's why it's important to be screened. That's why it's important to say, hey, I'm of the age that's recommended by national guidelines. It might, you know, it might be the right thing to do, or hey, you know, I'm, I've had i have had so many people in my family diagnosed with breast cancer. You know, my first cousin was diagnosed with prostate cancer in his fifties. You know, maybe, maybe I should get that early PSA before, before you get to that point. Okay. Now, undoubtedly, even if you screen people, you'll still have people who, I mean, you, you can't detect everybody, you know, again, I'll go back to my training, which is really informed kind of the way I do things. And I'm, I'm very proud of my training in Brooklyn, but it's unfortunate, too. You know, we we diagnose somebody with prostate cancer at the age of 30. Not only was it prostate cancer, but it was metastatic. Mm-hmm. You know, obviously you're not going to catch that. Right. So there's going to be a small amount of people that you miss. But the majority of the people that you're trying to avoid them get into this point where they have that kind of pain and, and where they have these local symptoms. Does that answer your question, Dr. Selby?
0: It does. And one thing that I, another point that I wanted to make with that was that um, and in that episode, um, Basically, she was talking about, right, the failure of our system, essentially, um, in letting her uncle fall through the cracks when he began to have these alarming symptoms. Now, if you mentioned that to me, right, in the emergency department, especially the extent to which his symptoms got where he could, like, crawl out of bed, as you said, Dr. Myers, this severe pain, um, didn't really mention any any of the urinary symptoms that we would um, maybe expect, right, with um, a locally advanced um, cancer But um, he had some red flags, right? And unfortunately, he suffered like many of us, especially um, African American men or men of African descent, right? John Henryism and this sort of work, right? We're trying to provide for our families. We're dealing with uh, some of the challenges um, in this country in terms of systemic uh, oppression and racism, and you name it, right? And unfortunately, he was a victim of all of these things um, when it really came down to it. But I say all of that to say in that, right, what we really try to do is not scare you in this program because I know there's probably brothers out there thinking now um, and other men out there thinking, hey, I gotta get this back pain. Yes, you, you probably should get that back pain checked out if it's really bothering you and it's been there for a while or you're having some urinary symptoms and really just see a doctor or a healthcare practitioner on a regular basis. We definitely want you to do that Uh, But also, right, we have to be intentional about our health. That's what it really um, goes back to. And unfortunately, at the point that he actually sort of lost his insurance, which further, right, affected his access to care, um, that made probably, I mean, we can't know for sure if that really led to, you know, eventually what happened um, with his passing. But again, the, the earlier we can get to a diagnosis like that, the better the options can be potentially um, as far as diagnosis, as far as treatment. And so um, I'm with you 1000% Dr. Myers. Yeah, we don't want you to get to that point. That's the that's the key. Yeah, exactly. And we have to find ways around these barriers to care, which actually segues perfectly um, into our sort of next uh, question in that. What are you seeing, right? Because, uh, you know, when we talk about Um, this illness, and when we look at the discrepancy in outcomes, um, what is it that is a barrier to care? What is it there that might be barriers to care or challenges in individuals, especially in these high-risk groups? Um, We talk about um, individuals from African descent. We talk about individuals with a lower socioeconomic status. Um, What are the barriers to care to men really just getting this taken care of
1: well i think it's a lot of it you know there's definitely a lot of those issues that you brought up the systemic oppression and and, i mean i think that there's no secret that that stuff exists um and i think anybody who says different is just not telling the truth um but i think that another big barrier is just the lack of i think that people don't feel comfortable i'm just going to put it straight out and that is real and because I cannot tell you how many times I've been in multiple different settings, man, am I so happy to see you? And I know exactly what they mean. I know exactly what they mean. And so I think um, a big part is just kind of that level of comfort, right? And, and you know, some people might say, "Hey, you know, well, this is a you. This is supposed to be a place where you don't have to think about those kind of things, and we're all here to help." But it's just not the case. I mean, we've seen time and time again history has showed us that that's not always the case Mm -hmm. and so you know you can't necessarily change you know that that feeling i mean even me i'll be honest with you sometimes you go in certain places and you just you know you get that you get that level of man are are people looking at me funny and 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 you know is this person really trying to help like you really get that and so I, i you know that's the that's a lot of times, that's the first thing I hear. It's it's like a sigh of relief. Like I am so happy to see you, and it's usually, you know, a brother, and I'm honored because I'm like, man, I'm I'm so happy that I'm able to to be that for you, and and you know, we're able to kind of navigate this together. But it shouldn't be like that, right? But mm-hmm. unfortunately, because of some of the issues we talked about, it is. But I think that that's a big barrier, and I, and I think a lot of it is just people not really understanding where people come from. I mean, for example, like like even even the fact that people are apprehensive about the digital rectal exam. So, like some people may kind of go, "Well, what does that mean?" and and things like that. And but the and that's reality all men. Is that
0: that's across all races, creeds, origins, religion. Yep,
1: that's a common thing. And like, but like when you sit down and think about it, it's like I mean, it's not. just, I mean, there's a lot of there's a lot behind that. Sometimes, like some people have legitimate reasons to be like sexually assault. I mean, there's been a lot of things that we've been able to uncover, and like, if you just feel like somebody, like, if you sit down with somebody, and you're like, hey, man, what's wrong with you? Why are you not doing this? That's kind of, you know, that that doesn't make people want to open up to you and want to kind of be screened. It's like, man, this person is judging me, but if if you can just sit down with somebody and say, hey, man, I understand everybody does this. I probably would be a little nervous myself, but, you know, and then that opens up the door for people to tell you these things, like, hey, man, this is what happened to me, or or you know, this is why I'm a little apprehensive about it. Or hey, this is how it was diagnosed in my dad, and you know, my dad was my hero. Wow. And so my thing is that I never want to see, you know, I don't want to, I don't want to endure what he had to. I mean, it's just a lot. And so you know, people, providers. When I say people, just really sitting down and taking the time to really just understand people and understand where they're coming from. Some people have cultural things. You know, um, you know I'm I'm from a culture where, you know. You respect your elders, right? I'm not gonna walk into just because somebody's a patient. I'm not gonna walk in there and say, you know, I'm gonna say, you know, Miss such and such or Mister such and such. I'm gonna give you that respect because that's how I. I mean, that's a cultural thing. I've been working with people who walk in and 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 call somebody who's their elder, you know, by their first name. I'm like, you can't do that. That's that's you know, so it's just little things like that, you know. So I, I think that we have to do a better job of making people making people comfortable and trying to understand kind of where they're coming from. And I think it's easier for people to understand that that you're really just trying to help them when you do that.
0: Yes. And one thing I would I would add is that um ladies and gentlemen out there, um, sometimes we have to advocate for ourselves, right? And and we talked about this before um in our segment dealing with how to find a primary care physician, right? How to choose a primary well, there's sometimes you might have to choose um, the doctor or healthcare practitioner that is going to, right, help you with this issue. Um, maybe it is, if there's a urologist that you see that they didn't, you know, you didn't feel comfortable with that individual, maybe it's time to find someone else. And we can't guarantee that you'll always be able to, depending on where you are and um, sort of the availability, but you do have rights, right, um, uh, to find somebody that will be able to meet your needs adequately and make sure that you're comfortable and especially as we said that you'll be able to make these decisions with um, and get the care you need going forward yep so lastly and we don't have to get too much into detail with this but um let's say we've gotten to that point right a person was screened and maybe they do have a diagnosis of prostate cancer a new diagnosis what are the avenues um as far as additional diagnosis or further evaluation for that? And if we just talk about a rough idea as to the treatment, right, options um, going yeah. forward, how do we sort of get that person ready to to tackle that, to take care of that? Diagnosis? Yeah,
1: so that's a good question. Um, before we do that, just I'll just say really quick, if you have one elevated PSA and you don't have a rectal exam, or if the rectal exam is normal, you always want to get a second one to confirm. Just, just I want to put that out there. We never really react off of one elevated PSA. Um, hello? Yep, I
0: hear you. Yeah,
1: we never really react off of one elevated PSA. Um, so always make sure you have a follow-up if you have an elevated PSA before before you go forward with the di- biopsy to diagnose. But the, in terms of, of what you do, so you've been biopsied, you've had two elevated PSAs, say the PSAs were six, or you had a, a, an abnormal rectal exam and a PSA of four, right? Um, it depends. So risk stratification is always important. It depends on what risk we assign to you. And there's a number of things we look at. We look at how how bad the grade of the cancer, how bad it looks under the microscope. And when we grade prostate cancer, we essentially grade it on a scale of one to five, um, five being the most aggressive apparent, uh, one being not aggressive. So it depends on on the grade that we see on the biopsy. It depends on how many places we see it. Um, we, we take these cores and it depends on how much of that core has cancer. It depends on your PSA, it depends on your rectal exam. There's a number of things, but we put this all together. Um, and, and we use, sometimes we use special cal- uh, calculators. Sometimes we just use PSA exam and, um, and biopsy, and we, d- we assign you a risk. We assign you basically low risk, intermediate risk or high risk. And, and there's even further stratification within there, but I'll just keep it simple. So for lower risk prostate cancer, basically the treatment is is no treatment at all. Essentially, it's, it's we usually recommend something called active surveillance, which is basically a form of of a form of treatment where you basically actively watch in this cancer very carefully, and um, and that entails multiple biopsies, that entails multiple PSA blood tests, multiple exams. It's a very safe approach for men with low risk prostate cancer, um, because we find that in low risk group, we tend to over men and we give them this aggressive treatment that potentially could affect their erections, potentially could affect their ability to hold urine, you know, just general sur- risks of surgery. And it's a cancer that may not ever do anything to them. They may and they may die with the cancer, may die of something else, um, live 20 years with it. Um, so that's low risk, right? Um, but as you get higher and you get intermediate risk, and some people, after surveillance is still a strategy, but we would usually recommend either surgery or when you remove the prostate, you remove what's called the seminal vesicles, which are glands that sit right behind the prostate. And in some people, you even you even take some lymph nodes in the in the in the pelvis. Um, and that can be done either robotically, which is what I do, or it can be done in a traditional way open. Just kind of depends on the surgeon um, experience, um, preference, things like that or radiation, which sometimes we combine with um, basically what we call, we call it androgen deprivation therapy, which is essentially anti-testosterone therapy, essentially. Um, So again, for intermediate risk, it's either active surveillance in some people, surgery or radiation plus or minus hormones in most people. High-risk disease is pretty much the same as intermediate risk, except active surveillance is, 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 is you know, we, we try to dissuade people from that. High-risk disease gets a little bit different though. Um, high-risk disease, when I say high-risk disease, I'm talking about disease that's still in the prostate, but it might be bulging outside of the prostate. It might be bulging into the urethra. It might look like you have swollen glands and things like that. It might look like you have a very aggressive prostate cancer on a biopsy. Those prostate cancers tend to, tend to require a combination of those therapies, surgery and radiation, plus and minus hormones. Um, and then if you have metastatic disease where, you know, you're presented with this bone pain, this weakness, obviously the, 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 the treatment is not curative at that point, And we're trying to just control it as, as best we can. And then there's hormone therapy that we can androgen deprivation therapy that we can give in that situation. Sometimes chemo, you know, sometimes radiation, um, what we call palliative radiation for some people. Um, depending on a situation, but, but that's pretty much the treatment spectrum in prostate cancer. Now that was a pretty fast kind of mm-hmm. run through. And so, um, you know, I'm happy to kind of answer any specific questions about the different risk categories and specifically what we talked about, but, but that's it in a nutshell.
0: Got it. Thank you. Thank you very much for that, um, Dr. Myers. And so as we begin to wrap up um, I would say, what is, what do you think is the most important thing? If there's any message that men and their loved ones, right. Cause the ladies, you're still tuned in. Um, it's that <laughs> important, <laughs> but uh, what would you say is the most important take home message from everything that we've sort of discussed? Um, we talk about prostate health and we talk about prostate cancer awareness. What is the most important thing that really everyone should take home with them? Um, in, in regards to this topic?
1: Well, I think, um, Screening is important. I think um, you definitely want to have a provider um, that you feel connected to. um, Somebody who you know has your best interests at heart. Somebody who you can ask questions to and and not feel like you're being judged. Um, People that you feel like you can say, hey, I don't know if I'm ready to do this, um, but I'm interested in hearing the reason why you think I should do it. Making sure you just have a good a good provider that you trust and that can help you kind of get through that. Um, but I think the biggest thing ultimately is that I think screening is important, um, particularly for prostate cancer, um, because we do find those prostate cancers that that do need to be treated and that potentially will impact somebody's quality of life and their life and their quality of life if they go untreated. Um, mm-hmm. And so, so that's what I, that's what will be the ultimate take-home message. I think everybody should should engage in some form of screening for prostate cancer, um, you know, at the age ranges that we kind of discussed and earlier in in people who it's appropriate to do it earlier for.
0: And just to add to that, as we get, I know, and thank you for that so much, Dr. Myers. Um, Thank you for for really just spending this time with us. Uh, But one thing I just wanted to add to, especially your sort of, um, right, breakdown as far as the treatment, right? Um, And yes, there's more detail, ladies and gentlemen, but the biggest thing that I think we need to think about in that regard, right, in addition to Dr. Myers, right, most important message, get screened. But just know that there are options right there is a way forward because I I do know that there are men out there who's the fear alone, right, of potentially being diagnosed with prostate cancer, Um, being that we know how common this is that right there might be a roadblock to them getting screened, to talking about this. But know that there are options. There are options. And the faster we know, the more that we know, um, the sooner that we know, the more options you will have. There is a way forward. It's so important. So you gotta get that screening.
1: Yeah, and definitely, I think, you know, that's important, there are options. And obviously we're coming at this from a medical perspective because that's what we do. Now, oftentimes you hear people that want to take a natural, you know, or something that kind of approach, which I don't I don't um, I, I I don't tell people that and I, I don't disagree with that, um, because I do think that there might be some element of, of efficacy with those those kinds of treatments. Um, we have the most scientific evidence from the things that we recommend and that we talked about, but who's to say that some of these things don't work. So what I commonly tell people to add to the options is that That is an option, too. And if you want to explore that option, I'm happy to I'm happy to be with you. You know, after we have this discussion of what we know works and things like that, I'm happy to be with you as you walk through that. But I think you should at least consider if you're going to do that, you should also consider, you know, concurrently doing the stuff that actually that we know we have scientific data that works. Mm -hmm. So for people that that, you know, want to take a more natural approach. Like I said, I'm I'm OK with that and I'm OK with, you know, being with you and, and respecting your opinion. But I, I think it is something to consider of, you know, taking part in the stuff that we do, that we know does work as well.
0: I want to thank you very much, um, Dr. Myers. And one thing you must understand is that you are more than welcome to join us again, brother. Um, it's really. I love to. to
1: see I you. <laughs> really this. I, I, I would be more than happy to. I, That's I really part this. Two.
0: Yeah, we need a part to the men. I mean, there are more questions. We talk about, you know, sexual health. We talk about just men's health in general. Um, There are tons of men out there um, from every, you know, corner of the world that really need to and want to hear from brothers like you. So um, this is an open invitation. But we we really appreciate the time you spent with us here today, especially after a long work day um, in clinic and probably more ahead
1: for the rest of the week. Um, but thank you very much for, for this no problem I just had a thought too I don't know if you guys like take questions or anything but if there's a way to like maybe get some questions together maybe we could set a second session where we just I mean because we could literally do a whole session on just questions because I mean the I, men have see, a oh yeah we got it. <laughs> now we have At family cookouts it's like hey man I'm just trying to I'm just trying to enjoy some you know yeah exactly music. I just want a beer yeah yeah, yeah. yep Yo. I don't want to talk about your prostate issues right now, but you know, <laughs> I understand that this is something that so if, if there's any questions that you want to tally up and we can set a time to just address the questions, I'm more than happy to do that.
0: That's what's up. We, we you heard that, ladies and gentlemen, right? That's
1: <laughs> so
0: yes, absolutely. Um, also we want to thank Anastasia and Reed, uh-huh. we want to thank Giorgio, we want to thank Michael Holmes and Ashley and mia and ben Sufari, the whole health in harlem team we also want to give a shout out to angela harden and tina dixon they run the show at whcr make sure everything is going well and that we are out there on the air so shout out to them and the rest of the whcr family and ladies and gentlemen as we always say each and every week this show is dedicated to the memory of miss gloria thomas harlem take care of yourself